Well, this morning we're back in our series in the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to John chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. It's going to take the first kind of chunk of John chapter 2. One of the things I love about this Gospel, as I heard someone say this week, is that it's shallow enough for a child to play in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And what I mean by that is, is no matter where we are in our journey with God, there will always be something here for us. Maybe it's your first time exploring faith. You have, you have no idea what this church thing is, who Jesus is, or any of that, but you can find that in John. Maybe you've been following Jesus for decades and decades and decades, and I hope that and trust that as we go through even this passage this morning, you'll find something there as well. The Word will continue to speak to us. So let me read our text for us. This is John, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother turned and said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now take and draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. These verses today are the beginning kind of of, of two sections in the Gospel of John. The first section we have is the the section that goes from chapter 2, where we started all the way through to the end of chapter 12. These chapters are where John records for us Jesus' public ministry. And the section is often called the Book of Signs. Because as we'll see, through these chapters, Jesus reveals his glory. Remember in chapter 1, verse 14, we read that that the word that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, that that he moved into the neighborhood, And John says that we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And just kind of as an FYI, the rest of the book after chapter 12 is called the book of glory, because that's where we start to see Jesus glorified by God, and he then receives glory. So we've got two two sections in the book, the, the book of signs and the book of glory. The second and smaller section that we're jumping into here includes just chapters two through four, which start and finish in the same geographic region of Cana. And this is significant because this is a region that wasn't just Jewish. There were both Jews and Gentiles living in the area. And so what this means is that right from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, his message was for everyone. This this new community, the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in, that he was doing through fulfilling the Old Testament law, The kingdom of heaven was and is one where everyone had an equal seat at the table. 
The other thing we're going to watch and see in these three chapters is this theme that, that Paul actually writes about later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says, the old has gone and the new has come. And so just in these three chapters, from 2 through 4, we're going to see how Jesus himself will replace the, the old purification laws with the new wine of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to see him start talking about how he will replace the old temple with the new risen Lord. We're going to see a description of new birth and new creation in chapter 3. We're going to see the contrast between Jacob's well and the living water that Jesus brings in chapter 4. And we're also going to see this worship in Jerusalem and the mountain in Samaria transformed into be worshiping wherever you are in spirit and in truth. And so that's what we're getting into this morning and for the next handful of weeks. So let's dig in. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Again, on the third day, uh, where have we heard on the third day before? That sounds like something we should maybe pay attention to, shouldn't it? On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now keep in mind that, that these are small towns. It's not when they said this is Cana and Galilee. It's not like Calgary and Alberta where there's people everywhere kind of thing. But these are small towns. And so since there's a wedding where the mother of Jesus was invited, and as well, Jesus and his disciples were invited. Uh, we've been in, introduced to five of his disciples so far, but there may have been up to 12. We don't know, kind of in John, he doesn't tell us where the other seven come from, but they're there in chapter 6. But since this was a small town and Jesus' mom was invited and Jesus was invited and his disciples were invited, it's likely that this was a, a, a wedding of a family member or a friend, someone they knew well. And so Mary, in fact, may have been playing a role in hosting or even catering this event, which is probably why she came to Jesus. Now, I would guess that, that most, if not all of us, have been to a wedding at some point in our lives. There's it's, a, it's an amazing time. These, these are, are times where there's so many different emotions, as you can imagine. There's the excitement of, of a couple's new life together. There's the, the mixed emotions of, their, of a parent letting their children leave the nest. There's the stress of pulling off a day where every detail has been planned just so. I've had the great honor of, of, of officiating several weddings in the last number of years, and, and it doesn't matter if it's a, a small elopement on a trail somewhere in town here or a lavish ceremony with hundreds of guests. I just love being a part of that celebration because there's, there's so much going on. As, as much as we think about weddings in our day, uh, in Jesus' day, in the first century, the, the celebration was even greater. One writer notes for us, the wedding celebration was considered to be the most grand event in life, especially among the poor. Typically, the Hebrew wedding ceremony took place late in an evening following a feast. And after the ceremony, the bride and groom were taken to their home in a torchlight parade, complete with a canopy over their heads. And they were always taken along the most cir circuitous, circuitous, the longest way home the longest way possible so that everyone had, would have the opportunity to, to wish them well. This is the longest receiving line they could find. Then instead of a honeymoon, they held an open house for a week, and they were considered to be king and queen and often actually wore crowns and were dressed in bridal robes, and their word was considered to be law that week. In lives that contained so much poverty and difficulty, this was considered to be the supreme occasion says, many would plod through all life without ever having a celebration like this again. 
And so with this background, I, I hope you see that it would be, be difficult to overstate Mary's urgency when she comes to Jesus in verse 3 and says, the wine has run out. They have no wine. In these week-long celebrations, the, the financial responsibility for the party rested on the groom, and we'll see this alluded to later in verses 9 and 10. And so he and his family had to make sure there was enough for everyone for the whole duration of the event. And in a way, the way they hosted this party showed the bride and her family, listen, we will take care of your daughter. I will take care of your daughter. And so you see, if the supplies ran out, this was a horrible embarrassment. I think today, if you and I hosted a party and something ran out, we would be able to just run down to Safeway real quick, pick it up, and, and if we were really stealthy, we might even be able to fix the problem before anyone even noticed we'd slipped out. But this wasn't an option then. And even more than that, in the first century, there, the culture was so kind of fixated and formed by the idea of honor and shame. Now, we may use shame today in a, a negative sense to try and get people to do what we want, but we shouldn't do that. But this honor and shame culture is a whole different animal. So not only was this a, a tremendous embarrassment for the groom and his family that the wine had already run out, but there's actually some evidence in the writings from that time that, that if the groom didn't provide enough for the celebration, he might actually be open to lawsuits from the bride's family. This is a big deal. Kent Hughes also helpfully notes that we're not just dealing with a, a crisis in a single event here. He says this, that, that we read they have no wine. It's not only a succinct statement of the young couple's problem, but as John, the writer, saw, a spiritual condensation of the human experience without Christ. Life without Christ is like life without wine, he says. The scriptures use wine as a symbol for joy in, in several places. In Psalm 104, it says, uh, wine gladdens the heart of man. In Isaiah 55, uh, Isaiah writes, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. To the Jewish mind, wine symbolized joy. There was a, a contemporary saying of the rabbis there that without wine, there is no joy. So what John is describing here is more than just a problem at a party. He's, a, he's headed at the spiritual condition of the people too. The wine is running out. He's saying this is, you know what, this is the universal experience of people without Jesus. There's a time when the wine runs out, when the, when the joy and exhilaration and all the things of life are gone. Modern day poet, uh, John Mayer published a song called Something's Missing in 2003 on his Heavier Things record. And the, he puts it this way. He says, you know what? Something's missing. I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing. I don't know what it is. And he's got this bridge where he says, well, friends, check. Money, check. Well slept, check. The opposite sex, check. Guitar, check. Microphone, check. Messages waiting for me when I get home. And he says, how come everything I think I need always comes with batteries? What do you think that means? See, he, even, even, even John knows all this world has to offer leaves you feeling empty. No matter, no matter who you are, no matter what wines you've tasted, there comes a time when the joy in them just runs out. Sometimes sooner, sometimes later. 
I mean, we can flip back into the Old Testament and the whole book of Ecclesiastes basically says the same thing. I went after this and found it wanting. I went after this and found it wanting. I had everything in the world I could want and found it to be meaningless, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I see this so much in our culture over the past decade or more even. We go after the newer, the shinier things. We loosen restrictions on things, making them more accessible to us or more appropriate for us. If I just sleep with this person or these people or this many people, I'll be happy. If I, if I just made this much money, then I'll be happy. But the wine runs out. Verse 4, Jesus says to her, says to his mom, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I do need to take a minute here and stop because Jesus seems rude, doesn't he? If, if I said this phrase to my mom today, even today, I'm not in her house anymore, but if I went to her and said this today, she would rightfully be offended. And so I know some of our kids are in the back, and I know there's at least one kid in the room here. And let me tell you, if you go home today and try and pull this off, but mom, Jesus said it, so I can say it, right? Don't call your mom woman. It won't go well for you. Just saying. But the word that Jesus is actually using here is one of honor and respect. And we know this because we see him use it again in chapter 19 when he's, when he's on the cross and he's caring for his mom and he's saying, John's going to take care of you now, mom. And he says, woman, this is your son. Son, this is your mom. So he is, he is being caring to his mom here but he's also defining the relationship with her. As, as Jesus is stepping into his public ministry, he's kind of saying, listen, my, my hour hasn't come. My time hasn't come. I'm not here to, to obey what you tell me to do, but I'm obeying the Father. Mom, you can't just pull strings because you raised me at this point. You don't get special privilege because you're my mom anymore. What he's saying is, listen, you need to come to me. We need to, she needs to come to Jesus just like every other one of us does as a sinner in need of help. And so he questions her, and that question could be said, why, why, are, why are you involving me in this? What's, what are you doing here? He's saying, I didn't come down to do your will or to, to you know, make the celebrations better. He says, my, my hour has not yet come. If you've got a Bible in front of you, circle hour. He's gonna, this word's going to keep coming back again and again and again in the coming chapters. Now we aren't totally sure what Mary expected by coming to Jesus here. You can, you can guess that she, if she's you know, related or kind of knows this family well, she knows something's wrong and, and maybe Jesus can help it out. John is, is very careful to tell us that this was the first of Jesus' signs or miracles in verse 11. So it's not like Jer uh, Mary has so far had 30 years of, of Jesus showing off with miracles, right? Sometimes we think that, what did he do as a kid? He probably took you know, the clay pot and snapped and it flew away as a bird or whatever else, right? But, but John's really careful here to say he, this wasn't the way Jesus grew up. More likely, Mary has turned to Jesus because she has relied on him for a long time. Tradition tells us that, that she was a widow at this point, though the, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that. And we can sort of infer that because the last time we hear about Joseph, her husband, was when the family visited the temple and Jesus was 12, right? So that, there's, there's 18 years between there. So chances are, at some point in that window, Joseph has died. And so now Jesus, as the firstborn son, has been the one responsible for providing for his family. 
So she likely has been relying on Jesus to, to take care of her in many ways for, for a long time. He would have taken on the family business. He would, have, he would have done these things. He would have been providing for her. So we don't know how she's going to, or what she expects, but obviously she expects something. And this, she, verse 5, she says in a way I think only a mother could say, okay, son, uh, you guys, servants, just do whatever he tells you. He'll take care of this. I love this. What, what Mary is doing is not just sort of uh, taking the kind of subtle rebuke that Jesus said, like, it's not my time, Mary, but she's actually expressing her faith in him. This is a, an early discipleship moment, even for her, where she says, you know, I know you're going to do something. I know you can do something. Whatever you do is going to be okay. It's going to be right. So she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So Jesus says to those servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Now I'm not very familiar with gallons because most people don't use gallons anymore. But we're talking between 500 and 750 liters of water filled in these jars. Filled right to the brim, we're told. So it's not like they were sort of filled and then Jesus, you know, snuck something and added it to it. Filled to the brim. There's no room for tricks. There's no magic here. Filled right up. And again, remember, John doesn't waste words. Our Bible writers do not waste words. So for us, about what jars were being used, he's being really intentional. What we're seeing is that Jesus is using these jars that symbolize the old way of cleaning oneself before God. He's saying that old way, those old purification rites, they're a shadow of what's to come and something new is on the way. He's saying that the rituals that were associated with the old covenant are giving way to something new and greater. Shadows being replaced by substance. Old rituals being replaced by new life. Commentator F.F. F. Bruce says, Christ is changing the water of Jewish purification into the wine of the new age. And Kent Hughes also helpfully says that Jesus was saying that he brings joy to life. And the joy he gives is abundant and overflowing, filled to the brim with the best coming at last. Verse 8, And Jesus said to the servants then, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it had come from. Those servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the groom and said to him, remember, the groom's responsible for this, right? So he, he's impressed. He calls the groom and says to him, everyone usually serves the best wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then comes the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine till now, the best. You've saved the best for last. This wasn't just adequate wine. This wasn't just they found some in the back and watered it down to make it seem like it was wine. This was just not leftover wine that someone ran home and picked up really quick, 750 gallons of it somehow. But this was an abundance, hundreds of liters of really good wine. See, now that Jesus is here, now that Jesus is on the scene, things have changed. The wine Jesus made was vastly superior to the wine that they had before. It, it was so good that, that all those present could draw no other conclusion than this was a miracle. Something amazing happened here. 
Now, we don't know where along the process that the water actually turned to wine. Was it when they, they pulled it out, when they put it in the jars, and as it hit the jars, it changed? Was it when they, they drew it out, which is kind of significant language? Or, or when they walked along the, the side of the room or whatever to get to the master of ceremonies? But you know what? That's the point. John, again, is being very deliberate. The point isn't how it happened or when it happened, but the point is who made this happen. The point of the story is to reveal the power of Jesus. And we see this revealed in two ways. First of all, Jesus has the power to transform water into wine. Now, I've got a cup of water up here. None of us can look at this and go, okay, that's wine. I don't think. I, I can't. That means there's something different about Jesus because he did it with a word. So the question becomes, what are we going to do about this story? What are we going to do about this news of Jesus? And really, there's only two choices. One, we can say, it's not true. It's made up. The Bible can't be true. It's just a fairy tale. We can't trust this story. There's no way this could have happened. You can say that. The other side, the only other side, is realize that Jesus is so unique like no one on history before or since. And he did something actually miraculous. And the Bible tells us, John has told us in chapter 1, that he can do this because he is the creator. The second way we see Jesus' power revealed is we see that Jesus has the power to transform lives. Look at the last verse in the story here, verse 11. John records for us that this was the first of his signs, Jesus did it at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested, he showed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. There's really three key words in that sentence for you to circle. Signs, glory, and believe. These things are going to keep coming up again and again and again as we keep going. D.A. Carson writes this about the word signs. He says that John prefers the simple word signs here as opposed to using a word like miracles or, or something that, in that sense. He says that's because Jesus' miracles are never simply a naked display of power and still less just neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but they're signs. They're significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. I like that. John purposely calls these things signs because they go deeper than they just appear. This isn't just going to a magic show in Vegas. This isn't just watching you know, Magic for Humans on Netflix or whatever else. There's something here we need to pay attention to. And so as we keep reading John's gospel, watch for when John talks about signs and look for the deeper meaning. When you see chunks and passages where it talks about Jesus did this sign or this sign showed something, circle it and slow down and spend some time saying, okay, what, what is he meaning by this? What's going on here? Because Jesus didn't just come to impress us with his ability, but he came to point us to something so much greater, so much better than anything we could imagine. That new best wine saved for last. The glory, it says here, this, this sign manifested his glory. The glory of Jesus is starting to be made visible here. That's what manifested means. We can start to see it. Jesus is starting to show who he is and why he's come. Through the sign, he's shown that he has control over things that a normal human doesn't. 
that he is, in fact, the creator. He starts to show us some of his divine attributes, that he is, in fact, the word become flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And he shows us the glory of God. And finally, we see that the disciples saw this divine power. They'd been following him for, you know, a few days, maybe a week or so. They saw this power on display. They recognized what happened, even in some small early sense, and they believed. The point of this passage isn't that Jesus can meet needs, that he can, you know, get rid of the shame of a party that doesn't have enough. But the point is that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God, here to do God's work. We can see God in him, and then we need to believe in him. And so what we start to see here is the the disciples beginning their transformation, and they're having their faith in him increase. It started with with hearing John's testimony. Remember in the middle of chapter 1, he says, you know, there's, behold, the Lamb of God, right? And the disciples started to leave. And the disciples, two of them went from John, and they said, Jesus, you got to meet my friend here. Simon, you got to come meet Jesus. we got to go see Andrew. we got to go, we got to go meet Nathaniel. And then they start to see the works of Jesus. They start to hear the words of Jesus. And they continue to convince them further that he is who he says he is. And as they trust more in him, they'll go from these ordinary, average fishermen into the bold witnesses of Jesus we see in the book of Acts. So, as we start to wrap up here, what resonates for you in this story? Is it, is it the need for something in your life? Is that, that, if you hadn't heard that John Mayer song before, is it that, you know, I've got these things, I've got money, I've got friends, I've got my voicemails blowing up, I've got the notifications on my social media, but, but it's still something's missing. Is it that the, the wine in your own life has, has run out? The, the joy has left? The things that you, you thought and assumed and hoped would bring you joy just aren't? Are you starting to sense even that that joy is fleeting? You've put all your energy into building your influencer status online. You've put all your energy into uh, achieving these goals or getting these marks or building this business or whatever else. You can start to sense that, you know what, there's still emptiness here. Let me invite you to, to turn to Jesus, to turn to his new wine, to turn, turn to his joy overflowing. Trust in him and believe. The last thing I'll say about this passage is uh, we can't overlook that this first miracle happened at a wedding. The, the, the theme of, of, of weddings just runs throughout the Bible. The Bible starts with a wedding in the, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, and it wraps up with a wedding in the book of Revelation. John, uh, the same author that wrote the gospel, writes this in Revelation 19.9. To tell them this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this passage. Uh, We trust that that as we sort of said at the beginning, that that the gospel of John is one that's so, so safe and shallow that a child can play in it, but it's so deep that an elephant can swim in it. And so I I would ask, again, that wherever we are in our journeys towards you, our journey of discipleship and following you and and apprenticing you, Jesus, that you would speak to us through this. Maybe it's, it's we need to stop relying on ourselves. Maybe we realize that, that the effort that we're putting in is, is, is coming up empty, that, that, that our joy is running out and we need you. 
maybe it's, it's recognizing that, that the old religious rites, the stuff, the works, have been replaced, and maybe we've been striving and working so hard and, and, and realize that it doesn't bring us joy. We just need Jesus. Maybe we've thought that, you know, I'm just a good person, so I'll be okay, but you're recognizing that there's, there's always someone better. Jesus, remind us that you are the, the better, and you're the one that we're following. Maybe uh, the idea from the story that stands out most is, is the shame piece. You know, the, the, the groom and his family, they ran out of wine and brought, bringing shame on themselves. And maybe we've looked at, whether it's a party or something in our life, we just feel like, the, Jesus, I'm so soaked in shame. How can you do anything for me? But you did. You came. You walked this earth. You were perfectly obedient to uh, God the Father. You showed us how to relate to God and to one another and to creation itself. And then you went to the cross and you died on our behalf. You died to, to take our shame away. You were raised again, conquering our three greatest enemies in Satan, sin, and death so that we can be drawn back to you. Our shame can be washed away and we can be called children of God, sons and daughters adopted into the family of God. We thank you so much for that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.